BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 111. show where we take four celebrities, lock them in a room, and force them to solve complex puzzles in order to escape before time runs out. What are the stakes? Well, failing to escape is bad, and succeeding is good. It's just that simple. All right, so with stakes this high, feels like we should get right into meeting the celebs that are going to be playing today and explain the rules. You up for it? Yeah? Let's do it. That's Janet Varney. She's the host of Escape, a YouTube show on the Geek and Sundry channel. And on that show, groups of celebrities work together to solve escape rooms. Our adventurer is creative head of Geek and Sundry. And I'm going to go ahead and say escape room fanatic, Ms. Felicia Day. I do love escape rooms. I love playing them on, when they were old school Flash. I've been doing escape room games, Flash-based games, on online, on the computer for, like, a very long time. Let's meet our next player. We have a cosplayer. If you've never done an escape room, I highly recommend trying one out. They are usually single rooms inside an old house set up with a theme, a murder mystery, a kidnapping, a malfunctioning panic room, or a treasure hunt gone wrong. That's what's happening in this episode of this show. They're in an ancient temple trying to get out. You start out blindfolded, and then over an intercom, the game master tells you to take off the blindfold and begin. And there's usually a lot of elaborate puzzles hidden all around, which then lead to other puzzles whose solutions have to all be added together to solve the grand puzzle to get the key that gets you out of the room. The challenge is to do all this as a team before the time runs out. There's a bird? I bet this is like Tetris okay. or something. Ooh, oh, you have something. Owl eyes. Look at these owl eyes. Okay. Oh, I know what it is. I know what it is. Okay, look on the other side of that box. Does that... Okay, see? Oh, we have to match this okay. to like this, and then that's going to be the order. If you aren't communicating well, or if you're quick to anger, well, as the time runs out, you get more and more frustrated and confused, and teamwork breaks down because everyone just goes bonkers. Uh, okay, this has this has some, a carving in it. Okay, There's some carving. Have, yeah, I have so much carving as well. Okay. So should we build it maybe on this thing? But that's the point because you're trying to see how well you can work as a team. And as a team building exercise, escape rooms have become very popular. But they're also a lot of fun if you just want to do it to see how you would perform in a situation where maybe you had to escape a room to survive. And I think they're very illuminating when it comes to revealing how you personally deal with pressure and 
communicating with other people and trading off tasks and depending on others. Bursting open is like the most satisfying thing ever. I never have to see these people again! So when it comes to situations like these, group activities, projects that require four, five, six, seven people to work on a series of concrete tasks to reach a tangible goal, What do you think is the most important quality that group members should possess? Should they be smart? Should they be assertive? Should they organize, nominate a leader, and divide into pairs? Well, this is the question that psychologist Christopher Chabri has been pondering for several years now. Uh, I'm Christopher Chabri. I'm a professor at Geisinger Health System and a visiting fellow at the Institute for Advanced Study in Toulouse, France, and you can call me you can call me Chris, you can call me Professor Chabri, whatever you like to call me. You may have heard his name before. He along with Daniel Simons created the Invisible Gorilla experiment and together they wrote the Invisible Gorilla book. You should go look at that on YouTube if you've never seen it before. It really helped move the ball down the field when it comes to the scientific literature on attention. But today, Shabri is interested in something new, a concept whose investigation is just getting underway in psychology, something called collective intelligence. So the way that that my colleagues and I have, have studied it and approached it, collective intelligence is the exact same thing as individual intelligence, but it applies to groups. Yeah, you you probably assumed that. But that definition really masks just how complex individual intelligence really is and how much work has gone into creating the tools that measure it. There are different meanings of the word intelligence, and they differ between everyday speech and technical usage within psychology, uh, which is normal for psychology. Psychology uses a vocabulary that has lots of words that may mean one thing to the average person and uh, you know, a quite different thing to a researcher. To a psychologist, intelligence is a trait that is variable. It differs from individual to individual, and it's measurable, like height or weight. And like height or weight, you can measure it in many different ways just like there are sort of different technical means by which you could measure someone's height. You know, a ruler would be the most obvious one, but I imagine you could do some fancy stuff with lasers and, you know, and silhouettes and and other ways of measuring height um, uh, and weight. There are many ways of measuring the weight of a person. You know, you could put them on a, a balance, you know, and load up stones on the other side, or you could put them on a household scale. So there are different ways of measuring intelligence. The tool for measuring intelligence with which you are most likely familiar is the IQ test, or the Intelligence Quotient Test, which has been evolving for more than 100 years. But there were many others before it, and there have been many since, and there are many alternatives now. The important thing, says Shabri, is that no matter which test you use, most people score at the equivalent level across all of them, because 
Intelligence is a measurement of an overall trait, a kind of competence that applies to a measurable, stable level of success when that person attempts just about anything, any task, challenge, puzzle, or problem. So if, if I score you know, 110 on an IQ test today and I take a, a different version of that same IQ test tomorrow, I should score somewhere near 110, you know, maybe w- within you know, a certain number of points either way. But the basic idea is that it's a measure of the net um, general cognitive capacity of individuals. And and the key thing about intelligence that sort of differentiates it from um, other cognitive abilities, it's that it's it's a general capacity. So um, in many kinds of tasks, you would do better if you had more intelligence. Um, If you had better uh, long-term memory, that would benefit you in fewer tasks. Um, so it sort of had benefits you more broadly than more specific measures, like measures of your memory capacity or your, um, you know, your ability to uh, remember sequences or your even your vocabulary is sort of, you know, less important than your general intelligence in the sense of how widely it benefits you and, and how uh, how many different areas of of life it it matters for. What about this notion, uh, and I've seen this pop up several times, I actually remember being um, taught this in school, and I'm, by now it may be totally uh, bunk, which is the concept that there are different kinds of intelligence. Uh, it seems, from what you're telling me, it seems like this isn't how it's looked at right now, but I, I remember being told that there are people who are mechanically te- intelligent, there are people who are verbally intelligent, there are people who are mathematically intelligent, and so on, and maybe they aren't, uh, maybe they're highly uh, geared toward one kind of mental process, but not so much toward the other, but, you know, we should treat them equally, that sort of thing. What is the sort of view on that at the moment? Well, I mean, first of all, everyone should be treated equally, regardless of what they score on tests, you know, tests, <laughs> tests are measurements that that's like saying we shouldn't treat someone equally because they weigh too much or they weigh too little, or they're too tall or, or too short. They're just measurements of individuals. They're not determinants of value or worth or rights or anything like that. Mm. Um, we, we certainly, you know, we, we don't determine people's worth or their value, um, based on their scores on tests. Mm. Um, now, uh, the, the multiple intelligences framework, and there, there are sort of several different versions of that. Um, the one you mentioned is, um, sort of Howard Gardner's classic idea of multiple intelligences. And I think, um, that, most psychological scientists in the mainstream of the field and people who study intelligence uh, don't agree that all of these capacities, like mathematical, logical, verbal, um, kinesthetic, uh, you know, inter- interpersonal, and so on that that Gardner mentions, most people don't agree that those are all separate capacities. That the remarkable thing about intelligence and why it's called general intelligence is that people who do well in one of those domains, like math, also tend to do well in the other domains. They don't necessarily score exactly the same across all the domains. So certainly there could be someone who's, you know, in the 99th percentile in math um, and much lower than that in verbal ability, let's say. But it's not as though they're, uh, that person, it's not as though you couldn't make a really good guess as to where that person falls in verbal ability. Most people who are at the 99th percentile in math are well above average in verbal ability as well. And uh, you know, above average in, in other uh, facets of of intelligence. Um, that's part of the interesting thing about intelligence is that all these things do seem to go together, even though they they are different, right? It's obviously not the case that knowing vocabulary will help you solve math problems or vice versa. The remarkable thing is that people who 
you know, seem to be good at doing math problems or learn how to do math problems also seem to be pretty good with, with vocabulary and other aspects of intelligence. You, you just destroyed uh, the English majors and the journalism majors in the audience. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's not as though, well, but it goes the other way too, right? So like a, a poet, you know, a poet or a great writer might score super high on verbal intelligence. Um, that's what you would expect. Um, and even though they might deprecate their own math abilities and even, you know, uh, all professors have had students who come in and say, I'm not a math person. Well, that's probably just relative. It's probably just relative, right? If you've gotten into a good university or a, a good college, it probably means you're above average in math <laughs> as, as well as, you know, as well as the verbal, you know, verbal ability if you're a humanities student or something like that. So uh, no one needs to feel, you know, no one needs to feel bad about any of this. It's It's just the sort of the... It's the structure of the, the natural world that these things, uh, you know, seem to go together. So as Shabri told us earlier, collective intelligence is pretty much the same idea. It's a trait that is measurable, stable, and generalizable across a wide range of tasks and challenges that, through your performance on those tasks and challenges, predicts the likelihood that you will succeed at other tasks and challenges. But it's taking that idea and applying it to groups. As a whole, a group that is more collectively intelligent than other groups will consistently accomplish the goals it pursues as a unit, more so than a less collectively intelligent group. If you take a group of people that works together, let's say, you know, a work team of four people, um, that that team might also have its own inherent cognitive capacity that might uh, affect how well it does across a wide variety of tasks. Imagine the team, imagine a team of, of four people who start a startup company. Um, they're the only four people in the company. They're four people who've gotten together to start a company. And they have to work together on everything. You know, they can't divide up responsibilities. They have no staff to assign things to and so on. They've got to do everything themselves and mostly together. They've got to make all the major decisions together. They've got to do a lot of the grunt work together and so on. Um, they have to apply their collective intelligence to a wide variety of different kinds of tasks, sales, marketing, finance, um, you know, product development, uh, you know, manufacturing, you know, whatever. Um, and a, a group of people that has more collective intelligence will tend to do better on all those tasks. So it's the same thing as individual intelligence, but it's the intelligence of the group and it should explain how well the group does tasks that they do together. It's just intelligence at the, at the group level, at the level of small groups of people who uh, work together. My name is David McCraney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And our guest in this episode is psychologist Christopher Chabri, who's been working with a team of scientists to determine what factors increase the collective intelligence of our groups. All other things being equal, what characteristics improve the odds of team success, whether it's defeating an escape room, making a movie, designing an app, passing a piece of legislation, solving a crime, creating change, social change, solving a mystery of the universe, anything. And they've hit on three very specific traits that seem to be the most important. 
and you'll hear all about them after this break. I am always trying to get the most of my downtime, and I like to learn new things when I'm traveling, when I'm commuting, when I am sitting on the couch and I don't want to sit there and flip through the channels. I want something that's going to enrich me, and so I have this giant queue of shows from the Great Courses Plus. I call them shows. (laughs) They're lectures, but they feel like shows to me because I have all of these episodes, these individual courses that are going to make me a smarter person. I have this giant bank of things that are going to go in my brain and make me smarter. The Great Courses Plus does this by finding the brightest minds from the top 1% of professors in America, and they make them all accessible to all of us in their video lecture series. You get unlimited access to stream and download thousands of of these videos in so many different topics. There's always something new to learn. Right now, I'm watching Introduction to Formal Logic is going to make the logical fallacy episode so much better. Sometimes, you know, the most confident people can really be the most ignorant. You've learned about that with the Dunning-Kruger effect. That's why understanding logic is crucial to helping you make better decisions and judgments. It's a great line of defense in any situation, and this course will prep you. Now, I want you to experience the Great Courses Plus just like I'm experiencing it. So how about, I don't know, a whole month for free, a month of unlimited access to everything you can find. You want to learn about chess? You want to learn about uh, dystopian fiction? Yes, they have a whole course on dystopian fiction. Well, you can get a whole month for free by going to this special URL. Start your free month today by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. That's the great courses plus dot com slash smart. I mean, just go there and look at what I'm talking about and you will immediately type that in and go, mm-hmm, I'm getting this for one full month. One more time. It's the great courses plus dot com slash smart. Look, I don't know how it is for you. I don't know how it is for most men, but for me, shopping for clothes is, it's not fun. I don't like it. And I wanted to find a service that would make it not just easier for me, but would be something from the future where you have someone who helps you and then they send you the stuff in the mail and you pick it out on the internet and you just get the best clothes that are made just for you. And the whole thing is easy from top to bottom. I found that and it's called Bombfell. Bombfell is an online personal styling service that helps men find the right clothes them. It's simple. It's straightforward. All you have to do is complete a questionnaire and a dedicated personal stylist will handpick pieces specifically for you. Yes, I had this happen to me. It's amazing. Then once you've viewed all these items, you have 48 hours to make any changes or even cancel the whole thing. And you're in total control the whole time. You only pay for the clothes that you keep. Plus you have the option of receiving clothes once every one, two, or three months. So Bombfell is on your side. They don't make money if you don't find something you want to keep. I got my box today. I opened it up. I usually don't do this with clothes, but I was so excited about the whole process. I 
put everything on and I was like, I'm going to keep these. I'm going to keep the first thing they sent. Really high quality, absolutely perfectly made for me, for what I like. And best of all, look, here's the thing. We have negotiated with Bombfell to get you, the people listening to this show, $25 off of your first purchase. When you go to bombfell.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. That's bombfell, B-O-M-B-F-E-L-L dot com slash Y-A-N-S-S. Do this. Go there. Get $25 off your first purchase. You're going to love this. It's Bombfell. Open and close. And now we return to our program. My name is David McCraney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Before the break, we were talking with psychologist Christopher Shabri, who, along with his colleagues Anita Woolley, Alex Pentland, Nada Hashmi, and Thomas W. Malone, set out a few years ago to see what factors seem to increase the collective intelligence of groups. If you imagine a team of people as a single entity, and then imagine that entity has its own intelligence that is consistent across a wide range of tasks, which reveals the likelihood of success on future tasks, what would make one group smarter than another? To try to understand this, to determine this, to figure it out, they brought together a whole lot of people, like around 700 people, into the lab and randomly assigned them to groups of two to five members. Then, each team worked together on a series of challenges. We would get together as a group, which literally means just sit around a table, kind of like in a little conference room, a small conference room, and be handed a series of packets, uh, and each packet would be a task. One packet was an abstract matrix reasoning problem. It's common to IQ tests, and they did this together as a group, discussing it until they all agreed on each answer. Um, there was also a task uh, called the architectural design task. And in that one, that was sort of the last thing the groups did, if I recall correctly. They would be given um, boxes of Legos, and they'd be given some instructions for a building they were supposed to make and the criteria they were supposed to satisfy. And they would have something like half an hour to play with Legos together, trying to build what the instruction sheet said as a group building one thing. They also did a brainstorming task. And in this one, you generate as many uses as possible for a common object, like a newspaper or a brick. Normally, a brick is used to build things. What else could you do with it? You could prop a door open with it. You could prop a window open with it. You could cook with it. Um, you know, you could smash it into powder and use the powder for something. You have to come up with as many different ideas as you can. One of the strangest tasks was getting together and doing a Google Doc together. They all had the same article in front of them, and the goal was to get the entire article copied in as little time as possible. So it's kind of a coordination problem where you want to make sure everyone's doing something different, but that they that what they do is close enough together that it links together literally by by lines of text. Um, and you want to do it fast, but without making errors and so on. And it turns out that the, the success of the group at doing that task was very highly correlated with their success at the overall collective intelligence test. You might be thinking, as I did, that the most important factor in all this would just be intelligence. Add all the individual IQs together, average that number, and, well, there's your collective intelligence. But Shabri found that individual intelligence, it 
just really didn't matter. They tested people's IQs before the challenges, and all other things being equal, having really smart people in your group doesn't really make the group smarter. You might be thinking then that it's leadership. You know, leadership must play a role. But actually, they found that in groups where one or maybe two or three people dominated the conversation and tried to lead, those groups were less collectively intelligent than others where everyone got a chance to speak and they traded their ideas equally. In fact, this, said Shabri, is the first factor. This is factor number one. Uh, have it, whether the group um, effectively took turns and distributed the conversation uh, close to equally among all the members. So if there's one person who does a lot of the talking and uh, other people don't do very much, those groups tend to be less intelligent than groups where each person did about an equal amount uh, of the talking or contributing. So equal distribution of contributions seem to uh, be associated with, with more intelligent groups. The second factor, Shabri says, is the quality of the communication, specifically communication that builds off of empathy and the ability to read the emotions of the others in the group. Ha having individuals in your group who score higher on uh, a test called the reading the mind and the eyes test, which is known as a test of theory of mind. That's a test in which people see photographs, and those photographs are just of eyes of other people. And you must choose between four different options as to what that person must be feeling. So basically, we view it as kind of a test of social ability or social intelligence, um, your ability to understand what other people are thinking and feeling, and maybe take account uh, more of uh, you know, what their uh, knowledge might be, what information they have that you don't have, what their feelings might be about the situation, and so on. If you, the members of your group scored higher on that individual test that measures an individual trait, um, then your group would score higher on the collective intelligence test. So it's good to have individuals who, um, you know, have more social uh, ability, social intelligence, higher theory of mind. So groups whose members spend a lot of time together, they just fart around and goof off, they make each other laugh, they get to know one another, they have an advantage in this regard. And so that's the second factor. People with greater emotional intelligence, who care how other people feel, who have social sensitivity, they can read the expressions of other people better, they can... They can understand what other people are thinking and feeling from moment to moment, they contribute more to a group's collective intelligence than people who score high on any other metric. And then there's the third factor. Groups with more women scored better. Uh, and this was not, you know, it was not sort of diversity that sort of 50-50 balance of men and women is best. It seems according to our data that the more women you have, the better. Now, why is this? Shabri doesn't know. Speculating about the role of gender and the source of differences related to gender is difficult and fraught with the possibility of making really unfair assumptions. But at least in these studies, the evidence suggests that a group made only of women is likely to be much more collectively intelligent than a group made only of men. Having more women in your group also turned out to mean that you usually had people who had more social intelligence in your group. Um, so it's not clear that that doesn't explain all of it. There's probably something else going on um, be, besides that. So given these findings, if you want to create the best possible team to solve the tasks at hand most consistently, if you want the most collectively intelligent group you can create, the factors you should be focused on are 
One, create an environment in which everyone can share his or her perspective. Avoid leaders, avoid people who take over the conversation, encourage everyone to speak up and share their thoughts, and encourage everyone else to discuss those thoughts before the group makes a decision. Two, stack your team with emotionally intelligent or socially intelligent individuals. And if you don't have those people, well, you need to add them to your project or do what you can to build those skills in the people that you have. And three, put as many women on your team as possible. And by the way, they tested all of this with online-only tasks, and they got the same results. Even on the internet, these seem to be the most important qualities when it comes to collective intelligence. Now, of course, if the task at hand is repairing a bridge or doing open-heart surgery, you're going to need experts who understand those problems better than non-experts. But if you have your pick of bridge experts and medical professionals, you would be better off applying the factors that we just mentioned to those people. But if the task is novel, if you have no idea what kinds of challenges you might face or you will face a wide variety of problems, you'd be better off ignoring expertise and IQ and leadership and just focusing on these three factors that seem to lead to collective intelligence. Great communication, socially intelligent individuals, and teams that aren't all male. So this collective intelligence really, this gets to, I think, an important point that it matters more when the groups are going to do a wide variety of things and perhaps have to learn new things or un, you know, unpredictable things. If they keep on fixing bridges, you know, then bridge expertise might be more important. But if, like in my startup company example, they've got to do all kinds of different things and learn new tasks and keep on you know, shifting to new challenges and so on, then the collective intelligence of the group might become, might become more important. If you have two different groups inside a company, or maybe two different companies, or two different institutions, or two different uh, uh, you know, platoons, the group with the greater social sensitivity would be the more intelligent of the two. Is that, it seems like that, that's what this research suggests. Is that off-base? Uh, it's, it's, it's close. It's, it's close to on the base. Um, so the, the key, the, the, the key, um, I, I think the, the key thing that I would want to add is that this, this social sensitivity, which is a phrase that we use in one of our, in one of our early papers, it, for us, it means the same thing as theory of mind or social intelligence or something like that. It means, it means sensitive in this, in, in the, um, in the sense of being able to, um, you know, read and in, interpret and understand other people's emotions and states of mind and uh, understand things about people. Um, that, that's really what, you know, that, that's really what it means. Understand, uh, you know, people's behavior. Um, that's measured at the individual level. So, you know, you want a, uh, you want your team to consist of people who individually have that, uh, quality, uh, have that, that capacity if possible. So, you know, for a, for a team to have high collective intelligence for a platoon or, you know, whatever to have high collective intelligence, according to our research, you would like its members to uh, have high social ability, social sensitivity, theory of mind, whatever we're going to call that. But that is not measured on, on, on the group level in our research. So can, and this is speculation, I totally get that, um, but I know that, uh, you know, business minded people, especially someone who may be thinking about startups or thinking of, or they, they are the, uh, the leader of a, of a, of a large enough, uh, institution that they can break people out into groups. Um, what can we do, do you think to increase 
the this collective intelligence? What are what are some things we can do to make it more likely that our groups will exhibit this as if we're building teams? Um, that's a good. That that's another great question. Um, I am a big uh, advocate of you know making social science and psychology research relevant and you know applying it and taking advantage of it in in everyday life and so on. But I have to say that even though this is work that that I've been involved in and have been thinking about for a long time, I'm not sure it yet has clear, actionable lessons. And um, I think there are. It, it couldn't hurt to think about uh, you know people's social ability if they have to you know spend a lot of time interacting with others and being on teams, and and it couldn't hurt to think about the composition of your groups um, in uh, you know the sense of of trying to balance out some of the factors we talked about. And I don't think it could hurt to think about the structure of how groups interact and whether the systems and the structures really foster everybody being able to contribute equally. Um, It's certainly there's pathological systems and structures that, uh, you know, cause people to, you know, withdraw and to not contribute. And that's a classic problem in group decision-making, by the way, is that Often groups are less effective than they can be because individuals don't share important information or ideas that they have. Uh, that's really awful. You bring people together, you know, precisely to get the benefit of different people, you know, w- uh, you know, working together and, and contributing their individual, um, you know, thoughts, ideas, knowledge, and so on. But sometimes the groups, you know, paradoxically suppress that, or it doesn't come out as much as it should. So, so thinking about how to foster all those things makes good sense. Um, I don't know. One reason I'm, you know, one reason I'm not all gung ho, um, you know, yet is that I think we still have some more work to do in in understanding this collective intelligence construct. We've published a lot of papers that I've been involved in, in in one way or another, but I'm still doing more work on this. And you know, in particular, I think um, we should really sort of try to figure out more um, and more carefully whether certain people. Uh, cause their cause teams to get better or worse when they are when, when they are added to them. Um, it's it's kind of like um, in sports when you're trying to figure out you know you've got a team of basketball players and and you can pick five of them to be on the court at once, but which five? And you know if it's not all predetermined by who's paid the most and who the fans you know want to see and so on, but you have some you know you have some discretion there. Um, there are some relatively complex statistics that you have to do to try to figure out whether a particular player actually you know, increases or decreases the team's effectiveness and what the right combination of players, you know, is to maximize effectiveness. Sometimes teams get, you know, lots of players who were high scorers before they got traded, but then, you know, when they all get put together, suddenly the team doesn't, doesn't score a huge amount. And partly because there's only one ball to go around, right. And in basketball, but also there may be some lack of synergy or some even negative synergy where you put this combination of three people who achieved well on other teams put them together, they don't achieve well, you know, working together. And, and it's going to take more work for us to really get a handle on uh, on that kind of stuff. That's some of what I'm, you know, what I'm hoping to pursue uh, myself. So I think it, you know, the, the summary, the, you know, the, the short answer is it can't hurt to think about these factors that I've, that I've mentioned, um, but I'm not sure that there's yet sort of a, a magic bullet or, you know, a, um, uh, you know, a perfect answer to the, the question of, of how to best take advantage of this. Shabri did say, given his research findings, that if he had to guess, he thinks that cooperative games like escape rooms 
and cooperative board games and video games that take a lot of teamwork, especially games that take a group of people working together to solve a major task, they would probably all make for really great team building exercises. Now that's a great idea, by the way. I like that that escape room idea. And you know, one one exercise that I've thought of that that would be interesting in general in, in collective intelligence is um, is doing cooperative games, right? So there's you know there there's the whole genre of cooperative games, which has been on the rise in the last um, ten years. Uh, you know, where it's the players, you know, uh, against uh, you know some mechanism in the game, and the players can collectively win or lose. And I think those kinds of things would be we would be nice measures of. Um, of, of collective intelligence. In, in our research, we have had the teams do some, some more complicated tasks. I mean, really, what, what we have them do is a lot of simple tasks that take, you know, maximum of 10 minutes each that so we can do a bunch of those tasks in a row. But then in some of our studies, we've had them do something much more complicated afterwards with the goal of seeing whether the sort of the collective intelligence score that we calculate based on all those little short tasks predicts how well they'll do in a more realistic, more complicated uh, lengthier task. And, 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 you know, in general, it does positively predict that. So teams with high collective intelligence measured by a battery of short tasks also tend to do better on more complicated things. Um, that is so cool. It reminds me of the, um, the strange thing that, um, that, uh, that slash R slash place thing that happened on Reddit, where there was, um, um, thousands and thousands of people came together and each person could only place one pixel and over time, they uh, spontaneously created the Mona Lisa and a, and a bunch of other stuff uh, with no no one in control, no one communicating, no direction. It was just sort of people placing one one pixel at a time in real time. And it was, it was astounding to see uh, basically thousands of brains interacting with one another in this format. Yes, I, I, have, I have seen that thing. And it's interesting you mentioned that because there's, there's an example of something where you have collective intelligence in a way emerging from individuals interacting, but without being able to communicate with each other, aside from through the limited medium of how they change this common canvas, right? So in, in our experiments, we deliberately leave it completely open as to how they want to communicate. They can say any words they want to each other. They can suggest answers. They can say, you're stupid, you're wrong, good point. You know, they can cross out things on the page if they want and so on. It, it's completely wide open, whereas in this Reddit experiment and many others that have been done in the scientific literature, there are very constrained channels of communication. And, and those are very interesting situations because when you, take a, when you start to take away the ability of the members to interact in certain ways, you can kind of find out which interactions are really valuable for you know, for increasing or bringing out, uh, you know, collective intelligence. And, and we haven't really focused as much on that, although I think it's an interesting direction for the future, because really most of the times that we collaborate with people, we're not sitting down in a room face-to-face or we're not chatting with them in real time. You know, real teams in work often collaborate over longer periods of time, using only the internet, maybe bumping into each other in the hallway or at a weekly meeting or something like that. And those kinds of interactions, I think, represent sort of more realistic um, you know, well, not more realistic, but sort of like a, a very important, you know, kind of collective intelligence, as does the collective intelligence, which is a little bit more the wisdom of crowds one, where sort of everyone, you know, does something separate and out of that something emerges, which which represents a very intelligent product like the Reddit one. If 
you want to keep up with Christopher Chabri on Twitter, he is CF Chabri. That's C-F-C-H-A-B-R-I-S. He's also on Facebook. Easy to find there. And he has a book called The Invisible Gorilla. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. To find more great podcasts just like this one, go to boingboingpodcasts.com. The opening music, that is Clash by Caravan Palace. This music and most of the music in this episode is Incompetech. That's Kevin McLeod. You can find him at incompetech.com. There's also a song on the show. This show, it was from Banjo Apocalypse. Follow us on Facebook. It's You Are Not So Smart. Same thing on Patreon. Same thing on YouTube. On Twitter, though, it's at NotSmartBlog. I am at David McCraney. If you'd like some t-shirts or other merchandise, that's all available at YouAreNotSoSmart.com. So are the show notes for this episode, all the episodes, all the previous episodes are there. All the previous episodes are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. You can also get transcripts for most of the episodes, and soon you get transcripts for every single episode, including this one. There are some shows coming up. Let's see. What are they going to be about? Uh, there's going to be a show about artificial intelligence and how it is becoming as biased as we are because it is made in our image. There's also going to be a show about the latest Backfire Effect research. So it's going to be a fourth episode in the Backfire Effect series, building on the other three from earlier this year. Um, there's also going to be an episode about tribal psychology and partisanship, why we behave the way we do politically, what are the essential psychological underpinnings of all of that. And I'm about halfway through a new series on logical fallacies. And when that comes out, it'll last almost uh, half a year of episodes. So all of that's coming soon. And again, if you want to support the show, get the show with no advertising in it, go to patreon.com slash you're not so smart. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. America. 